Will you indulge me for a little while as I reminisce? Okay, I'm, I'm going to talk about my youth. When I was a very, very small child, one of my earliest memories is sitting on a chair, or rather kneeling on a chair, facing backwards. And the back of this chair had grooves in it. And because the church service I was in was so boring, I would run my penny up and round this groove. Up and round this groove, like this. Uh, uh. Later on, when I was a bit older, because we had services in those days which were what we called hymn, prayer, hymn sandwiches. You know that phrase? So that there would be a hymn and a prayer and another hymn and a reading and another hymn and then someone would preach. And so we had hymn, prayer, hymn sandwiches. And the prayer time was always taken by the pastor at the pulpit. And at that time, leading this church, was a pastor who prayed in sentences that ended with huge pauses. And I would count the length of the pause. There's something to do, because I was so bored. And I would count, you know, so he'd say, Lord, please bless those in Timbuktu. One, two, three, four. And Africa. Two, three, and sometimes I got to 10, would you believe? And that was very exciting if I got to 10. And I would check myself that I counted at the right pace. As I got older, I discovered that some people enjoyed worship and enjoyed what they were doing in church. I met people from other churches who were baptised in the Spirit and enjoyed what they were doing. And I got baptised in the Spirit too, and it transformed how I understood worship. It transformed how I took part in worship. It trans I stopped running pennies up the back of my seat. I stopped counting the pauses, because I often liked the pauses, because God was there. He was present in our midst. And um, then I went to Terry Virgo's church and he took us in this process of change where our worship went from hymn, prayer, hymn, sandwich to open worship like we've just had. And that was transformative for how I felt about worship. The presence of God came to us. And... It wasn't going through the motions anymore. It was real expectation that something would happen. And during the 1990s, some dramatic things happened in our worship times. All sorts of things happened because the Spirit moved in a very special way in the mid-90s. And we were caught up in that too. There were people who were acting as if they were drunk. There were people like me who fell over and worshipped the Lord on the floor. It was called carpet time. There were people like me who fell over and found everything very funny. I have this vivid memory of falling over, uh, falling backwards, uh, under, and my head ended up under this pile of chairs. 
And this pile of chairs became very funny. I have no idea why they were funny, but they were very funny. The Holy Spirit was doing something to release us, to stop us being so British, and to stop us being so conformist, to open our eyes to the possibilities of what God could do amongst us in our presence, in, with his presence. And it was so exciting. And people got healed and delivered and, and people got saved. And it was a, a wonderful time. Later on, even, some, let me just pick out one thing from later on, which is this, that we went to a leaders meeting from here to Aylesbury. And uh, in this leaders meeting in Aylesbury, we were worshipping and something that people had talked about and I'd never seen happened, which is the place got filled with gold dust. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. Gary Yee and I ended up under a table and the table was very funny. I have, I have memories, of, but, but the gold dust, you know, on your seat, on your coat, you brush it off, it was... God's presence, God saying, I'm here, I'm here to bless you. It was uh, quite an amazing experience and helped me to believe people who'd said they had their teeth filled by the Lord during that time, you know. You want a gold filling? Badoom. So it was an extraordinary time. God came as we worshipped. God came as we praised him. God came in our midst in special ways. And of course he comes into our midst in good times of worship like we have here. Of course he does. But isn't there more? Isn't there more? So I want you to turn with me to, uh, to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. And uh, we're going to read bits and pieces from chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, because I haven't got time to read it all. I'd love to read it all, because the cumulative effect of it is amazing uh, as you read it. But I'll try and get out the most important bits. So chapter 5, verse 2. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion, and all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the Ark, and they brought up the Ark, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place. 
before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves, without regard to their divisions and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrived uh, arrayed in fine linen, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar, with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Verse 12 of chapter 6. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you promised him, saying you shall not, not lack a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my law as you've walked before me. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you've spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold heaven, and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Have regard to the prayer of your servant, to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry, to the prayer your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be opened day and night toward this house, the place where you've promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Verse 40, towards the end. Now, O oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive 
to the prayers of this place. Chapter 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let me give you some background. I wonder if Solomon knew, realised, or hoped for such an event as this. Because he had completed building the temple and now he called the whole nation together to come, everybody. And the Levites and the priests, they brought the Ark of the Covenant up to be placed in the middle of the temple. So he finished this magnificent building which people from nations all around went to look at. He finished it and it was ready for this entrance of the Ark of, of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant. And he called the people of Israel together <clears throat> to stand there as he dedicated this temple to God. I wonder if he expected such an event as this. You know, David had a task. His father, his father David had the task of clearing the land of the enemies. And God said to David, David wanted to build the temple, and God said, no, you don't build the temple because you're a man of war. Your son who comes after you, he will build the temple and be a man of peace. And as we think about these events, let's remind ourselves. David cleared the land of the enemies in order that the people might worship God in peace, in order that the people might draw near to him. You know, with Moses in the wilderness, you couldn't go near the holy place. You couldn't go near the mountain at Sinai. You know, the people were held back and only Moses was allowed with Aaron to go in to the presence of God. And now comes this time, Solomon's day. David has done what, was, what was, he was called to do. God called him to make a way that the people might draw near. Are you beginning to get the analogy? Are you beginning to see the analogy? Have a think about it. David won the victory so that the people of God could draw close to him. David was the one who beat the enemy in battle. Jesus 
has won the victory. Well, I thought that was a good point. Jesus has won the victory. Yay! Woo! It's so English. Jesus has won the victory. And he has brought us near. He's made a way. Jesus has made the way. He's won the victory in order that you might have the possibility of the presence of God with you. That was why he was sent. He was sent to break the barrier. The temple curtain was torn in two. Do you remember that? Rip! So that you could enter in to the Holy of Holies. The Bible's careful here to tell us, you know, that you couldn't see, you couldn't see this ark. Only the poles stuck out into the holy place. But even the holy place, only the priests were allowed to go. There were limitations under this old covenant, although if you'd been there at the time, you wouldn't have thought there was much limitation, would you? As the cloud of the glory of God fell on the place and you couldn't stand, you were forced on the floor to worship the Lord. You'd have thought that was pretty good presence, wouldn't you? But under the new covenant, under the new covenant, the presence of God is with us all. And in worship, we can know the presence of God more intensely. We can understand. The cloud doesn't have to be physical. Though it would be great if it was, wouldn't it? We said in the prayer meeting before, wouldn't it be great if a cloud just came? Did I say that or did I think it? I can't remember whether I said it or thought it. Anyway, wouldn't it be great if a cloud just came like it did then? We'd be amazed, wouldn't we? You'd be dumbstruck. You, you'd be, well, you would be dumbstruck. You wouldn't, you'd be, ah, wouldn't you? If the cloud came, if the cloud of God fell into this place, you know, if it was a mist, a fog of the presence of God, you will be stunned. Why aren't we stunned when we come in to worship him? Why aren't we saying, oh, God, what a privilege, what an honour, what an amazing thing this is. Jesus has made the way. Hmm. Jesus has made the way. You could not stand in the presence of God, but Jesus has made the way so that you can. What's it say in Hebrews 10? Let us enter in with the full assurance of faith. Let us enter in. Let us walk into his presence with joy. Let us come to him because Jesus has made the way. And Solomon built the temple. And so who is Solomon? In, who is he a type of? Well, he's a type of the Holy Spirit, isn't he? So David makes the way, but Solomon, the Holy Spirit, Builds the temple. The detail the Bible goes into about this temple. I mean, it's amazing. The detail God talks about in the Bible. Because there'll come a day, and there is a day now, when the Holy Spirit is building the temple with minute attention 
to the detail. It's not an amorphous mass. You know, it's not, it's not something, you know, when, we, when Jackie and I were kids, there was a television program called Quatermass. And it was a scary thing. It was a sort of predecessor of Doctor Who. And the opening scene with the credits was this mass of, of mud and goo. And it was going... <laughs> and it was designed to scare seven and eight-year-olds watching it quite a mass. <laughs> the church isn't like that. The church is full of clarity of the purpose of God. Look around you. Every one of you here can know the clarity of the purpose of God in your personal life, but in this context, more importantly, in the context of the church's life. You have a place. You have a, you have a role to play. God is interested in putting you here particularly for the role you play particularly here because he knows you. He knows you through and through. He knows every detail about you. He knows the detail of your life. He knows you utterly and completely. And he's designed you to be here in this church. Do you understand that? And so this temple is built to the glory of God. What does it say in Ephesians 2, 22? In him, you also. <laughs> That's nice, isn't it? You also, as if you're thinking, well, other people, well, I'm not sure about, I'm not sure, you know, that God really looks at me and is concerned about me. Yes, 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 he is. You also. In him you also are being built together into what? A dwelling place. A dwelling place. The temple was a dwelling place for God. That's how Solomon built it. He built it on God's design. It was designed by God, built by Solomon, made into a temple for the presence of God to descend and be there and we are built together as a temple to God for God to descend and be with us. Do you understand that? It's so important for us. The church is not God's second best. The church is not God's third idea. The church isn't anything that is dismissed in heaven. The church is the bride of Christ. And you're part of that church. And you are important in that church. Every detail about you is recognised in the design of this church. And you think, well, I'm not sure. Uh, I can see that on some places. Maybe. No. Really. And truly. Sometimes we think, you know, people join this church by accident. You know, you happen to move here, you happen to be here, you happen to find this church and you happen to troll in one Sunday morning and you just happen to be here and you stayed here ever since. Mm. <coughs> Do you think that's how God sees it? Oh, whoops, you've turned up. Hmm. Better fit you in somewhere, I suppose. 
No, not at all. God has built this church to his desire. It's built by the Holy Spirit. That verse in Ephesians 2 goes on to say, built into a dwelling place for God. Built into a dwelling place for God, for God himself, for the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for God. Built by the Holy Spirit, for God, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit builds the church. The Holy Spirit is vital to the understanding of the correct building of the church. This is the grace of God to us. This is the grace of God to us. That first of all, David, Jesus, won the victory to enable us to enter in. And secondly, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit comes to us, dwells with us, and makes this a place where God dwells. God is dwelling here now. God is dwelling here even now. You know, God knows. God knows. God is here. He knew John would sit up and sit down. He knew John was itching. Better now. It's just, God knows. He's here. Isn't that wonderful? And so, David had a task to win the victory. Solomon had a task to build the temple. Jesus had a task to win the victory. And the Holy Spirit has the task to build this temple for the glory of God. Well, they came, didn't they? They stood around. So my second point is this. You didn't know that was the first, did you? Nor did I, actually. It's called background. Secondly, they came. We read it in chapter 5, all these people. Imagine 120 trumpeters. We'd have said, this band is a bit unbalanced, wouldn't we? This band needs to be balanced out. There's hearts, little, 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 and there's lyres, ticker, 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 and there's cymbals, kashrash, and tambourines, kaponk, and the trumpets. <laughs> uh, what a tremendous noise! 120 trumpets. Oh, and other musical instruments, whatever they were. Can you imagine? And then all the singers. And it says in the Bible, their job. Do you see that? Oh, wrong page. Their job was to sing in praise to the Lord. And they sung this. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We sing songs like that, don't we? We haven't got 120 trumpeters, though. Probably a good thing in this room. Can you imagine 120 trumpeters in this room blasting away? What a tremendous noise. It reminds you of the restoration of the temple in Nehemiah's time when, um, when they celebrated it and there was this tremendous noise and the noise of the worship of God was heard miles away. I expect this was heard miles away too. 
See verse 13 of chapter 5. Praise brings his presence. The house was filled with a cloud. The band, the singers, there's this tremendous noise, this tremendous praise and worship, and the presence of God came. And what about us today? How much did you really join in? Because today we can all join in. We're all singers. We're all participants. Even if we're tone deaf, you can shout to the Lord. We're all participants in this. How much did you participate this morning? You know, good time of worship, sense of the presence of God. How much did you actually focus in and say, Lord, I want this time to be for you? For you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. In verse 14, the presence of God brings worship. The priests could not stand to minister. They couldn't stand. They had to fall down in worship. You know, in those days, people did fall down, prostrate in worship. They did something bodily because the presence of the God was so powerful that it affected even their body. We're so used to thinking the presence of God in our minds. We're so used to thinking the presence of God is intellectual. The presence of God can be physical and can affect you physically. And you can know the presence of God affecting you physically. During the mid-90s, people were affected physically all over the place. That's why it was so amazing. I remember someone doing cartwheels all around the... Cartwheels, on and on and on, around the room. Cartwheeling in joy because of God. Wow. Imagine that today. It would be as radical today now as it was then. Only a couple of decades ago. Ooh. How physical are you prepared to be? Can you raise a hand? Ah. Can you clap? I think sometimes, you know, we, we just need to be released, don't we? We just need to forget those around us and just give of our hearts totally holy to God. We're not going to worry. You can't be indecorous. Is that a word? Indecorous. Indecorous. <laughs> Sounds like. Never mind. So you can't. You can't be indecorous before God. Something that is indecorous isn't prompted by God. Let God prompt you and you'll be fine. The presence of God brings worship even to your body, even 
to your body. Are you ready? Thirdly, Solomon then has this great section, chapter 6. Uh, you know, I didn't read it all. It is uh, an extraordinary chapter of, of praying. Solomon calls out to God for grace and mercy. He acknowledges, first of all, that God, this is crazy. I mean, this is basically what he's saying is, God, this is crazy. This magnificent temple on earth that will be a sight to be seen. Tourists will come and pay money, probably, to see this temple, this wonder of the world of that time. People will come to see this enormous edifice, this amazing place where they have made their temple. And people will come from other nations to see. But Solomon says, this is crazy, God. This is nuts that I should think that you, God of heaven, highest heaven, could come and live and constrain himself, squash himself down into this place. I was reminded of this when squashing up Rachel's water bottles, they suddenly appeared ready to be going in the recycling. And there they are, you know, water bottles this week, and you undo the top, don't you? And you squash them down until they're this big, don't you? Well, I do. So make space so you don't waste space. They're designed to be squashed. You squash them down and tighten the top, and they stay like it. You know, Solomon's saying, it's crazy to think that I have built this place so I can squash you down and tighten the top on you. So you fit. It's crazy. So that's the first thing he understands. He understands that God is the God of the cosmos, do we understand that God, the God of the cosmos, has come to us and fits with us through the Holy Spirit? That that was the old covenant. And in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells with us. It's the presence of God with us. He comes. You are born again by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, and that is the presence of God with you. Do you understand that? Then he asks, Solomon asks that God will always listen and always forgive. He goes through quite a lot of examples. Sposing, you know, it's like one of our kids used to like to say, sposing, just shortened, just supposing, sposing. And Solomon basically goes through sposing this happens. Lord, hear and forgive. Sposing this happens. Lord, hear and forgive. Sposing this happens. Lord, hear and forgive. He goes right through chapter 6 doing that. And at the end, he says, it's like he goes, Lord, grace and mercy. Forgive. When you hear our cry, forgive. 
but they've been brought near to the presence of God. He's, he's talking while he's kneeling on a platform surrounded by the cloud of God. Have you got the picture? This platform, five by five by three, so that he can see across the nation gathered before him. He, sta- he's, he's, he stood on the platform, raised his head, knelt down, raised his hands, and he starts to pray, and he says, Lord, whenever we are sinful again, Lord, hear us and forgive. And the Holy Spirit today will hear every cry of yours. Lord, please forgive. God is with you. More nearly, more closely than the people surrounding Solomon that day. He calls out for grace and mercy. You know, the Holy Spirit comes to us. And in Romans, Paul says, you know, the Holy Spirit speaks to God on our behalf with words we, and groans. We, 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 we groan and, and we're, we're struggling with English or in their case with Greek. We're struggling to express but the Holy Spirit within, as we speak in tongues, will express, God's, uh, will express your desires to God much better than you can. Did you know that? And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, hey, uh, who knows the heart of God but the, only the Spirit of God? Only the, only the Spirit of a man can know his heart and only the Spirit of God knows God. But guess what? We have the Spirit of God with us so that we may know the heart of God. You know, people who aren't Christians must think we're completely nuts. We say we know the King of the Cosmos. We say he knows everything about us, that he loves us, that he sent someone to win the victory so that we might come into his presence, his only son, our Lord. And then on top of that we say, we know God now. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says that you might know the wonderful freedoms of his grace delivered to you. I'm sort of summing it up. You can read it for yourself, 1 Corinthians 2. That we might know the heart of God and the heart of God's goodness towards us and his desires. This is the presence of God with us. And as we worship, we can pray. And God's response, finally, in chapter 7, this response, the fire comes. The fire comes. We used to sing this hymn in Terry's church. Um, We used to sing uh, some hymns sometimes, and one of the ones was, oh no, it was a later song, wasn't it, Let the Fire Fall? 
and Pentecostal hymn. Let the fire fall, let the fire fall. Was that, yeah, I'm getting muddled up. Let the fire from heaven fall. We are waiting and expecting. <laughs> we are waiting and expecting. Oh, Lord, may we wait and expect. Yeah? Oh, may we wait and expect. Let the fire fall. You know, the fire fell in other times and other places. You remember Moses in the wilderness? He sets up the altar and the fire falls. Boom! These pictures of the fire falling from heaven, they're separated sometimes by hundreds of years. It's not a frequent occurrence, okay? It's not that you wake up every day and think, I wonder if a fire falls today. It was amazing to them who were there. The fire fell, consumed the offering. What about David's altar? So he, he wants to build an altar to God and he wants to buy a place where he can build an altar and there's this threshing floor, Onan's threshing floor, and he says to, he says to Onan, I, I want your threshing floor, how much would you want for it? And they have this debate about whether David should pay for the threshing floor or not, that he might build an altar to the Lord. And when they got over all that stuff, he builds the altar. And the fire falls on the altar. The fire of God's, what? The fire of God's purity? Yeah. The fire of holiness? Yes. The fire of his presence, yes. The fire of his power, yes. The fire that says acceptance. This was the ultimate statement of acceptance by God, that the fire would fall on the offering from heaven. And what about Elijah on Mount Carmel? Yeah, when he's challenging the enemy, and he mocks the enemy through the day, and then it comes to his turn, and as he prays and says, Lord, hear us. Boom! Fire falls. The ultimate statement of acceptance, presence, power. And what happened in the new covenant, what happened to the church? How did the church start? The church started. When they heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind and the fire came. Tongues as of fire came and rested on them all. Not that they stood and looked at an altar and saw the fire fall, not that they stood as observers. No, 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 this is the new covenant. This is the new covenant, and God comes and falls on you. The fire came and spread itself around every individual. That's the new covenant. 
That's where we are now. That's the church age when each of us can know the presence of the power of God in our lives. And they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshipped God. So in conclusion, I just want to remind you of what Solomon said in chapter 6. Will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? And the answer to that rhetorical question that he made, will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? And the answer, of course, we know now is yes, he will. He will. He will. There will come a day when he will. Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Solomon's question, will this temple hold you? You're the king of highest heaven. How can you be constrained to such a place as this? And the answer in the church age has been, yes, I can through the Holy Spirit come and be with every single one individually. And now will come the final day. when God himself will come down and dwell with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Lord, we just long for your presence to be with us, not just individually, but corporately, Lord, as we gather together, will you come with your purity, your power, your presence. Lord, we long to know more. We know, Lord, you, you won't necessarily repeat the 1990s, but we know there's more to knowing you in power amongst us. God, let the fire fall every time we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.